Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Peter Saul. The new museum in New York City is presenting Peter Saul Crime and Punishment, a survey of Saul's career. The exhibition includes 60 paintings Saul has made over the last 60 years, from his investigations of domestic space and consumerism, to his pioneering anti-war paintings of the Vietnam War era, to his arch looks at right-wing politicians, which continue into the present. The exhibition was curated by Massimiliano Gioni and Gary Carrion Moriari. The excellent exhibition catalog was published by Faden in association with the new museum. Amazon offers it for $56. On the second segment, Barry X. Ball at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas. But first, Peter Saul, after the break. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents... Nancy Lupo, Scripts for the Pageant, at its downtown location through March 15, 2020. For her first solo museum exhibition, Los Angeles-based artist Nancy Lupo stages a conversation between the architecture of MCASD Downtown's Feral Gallery and a new sculpture, drawing attention to our presence among everyday objects, materials, and spaces that are often overlooked, but that deeply affect our understanding of the world. For more information, visit mcasd.org. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents two major surveys during the spring 2020 season, featuring Paul McCarthy and Tishan Sue. On view through May 10th, Paul McCarthy Headspace, Drawings, 1963-2019, to is the first comprehensive survey in the United States of drawings and works on paper by the Los Angeles-based artist. With 600 works on paper, spanning more than five decades, the exhibition reveals a rarely examined aspect of McCarthy's oeuvre. And on view through April 19th, Tishan Sue Liquid Circuit is the New York-based artist's first museum survey in the United States. Bringing together roughly 30 sculptures, drawings, and media work from 1980 to 2005, the exhibition reintroduces the work of a visionary artist who considered the implications of the accelerated use of technology and its impact on the body and human condition. Paul McCarthy Headspace Drawings and Tishan Sue Liquid Circuit are on view now at the Hammer. Find details at hammer.ucla.edu. This winter, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents a world premiere work by Sadie Benning. In Pain Thing, their rumination on responses to trauma and collective experience plays out across 63 mixed media panels. Also at the Wex, LaToya Ruby Frazier presents The Last Cruise, her critically acclaimed examination of the lives of GM workers in Lordstown, Ohio, after their plant was shuttered. And Stanya Khan completes the season with No Go Backs, a world premiere short film that follows two teens as they leave behind an endangered society. The exhibitions are on view through April 26th. For more information, go to wexarts.org. And we're back. Peter Saul, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to take part. Your, your painting from the icebox paintings of the early 1960s and really ever since has addressed contemporary life and politics and celebrity. And as I looked through the catalog for this show at the New Museum, I kept thinking about how in so many ways in recent decades, art has really come toward where you've been all along. <laughs> 
All of which is to say that you were early in making work that addressed the present, the American present in the 1960s. What about consumerism and political figures and American violence and so on interested you? What gave you permission, so to speak, to address the present in your work? Well, my feeling was I was making use of the subject matter, that it was doing me a favor by being interesting so I could paint a picture of it. It never occurred to me that I was trying to play a role like protesting or something like that. I, I felt just like an, one single artist who was trying to make it through life, and uh, I was lucky to think of this subject, this subject, and then that subject, and so on. Uh, the starting with the iceboxes, I never had a bad feeling towards a consumerism, although I, I admit I haven't really consumed that much. Politics, I feel, are a great subject, frankly. I mean, I don't know why other people don't do it. Well, a few do, but I'm, I'm surprised at how few. It's a simple matter, really, that a person in the electric chair is being executed is more interesting to look at than a person in a chair reading a newspaper. It's just as simple as that, really. I'm not counting on people to appreciate the way I paint. I didn't join up with any group of people that work a certain way. And it, it, we'll get to the uh, execution paintings in, in a minute. Tell me what about iceboxes, either as, you know, what they, what they had in terms of offering formally with they, they opened or, or otherwise. What about iceboxes interested you? Well, first of all, I was think, trying to think of stuff that I could use of Americana-type things, you know, like iceboxes, stoves, Mickey Mouse, and so on. And uh, the nice thing about the icebox is it contains things in a, kind of a thoughtful pattern, like you put the tomatoes in one place, you put the meat in another place, and so on and so on. So you can mess that up, and it would be more fun. You could have sex going on between, uh, you know, tomatoes and squash or something like that. And you could have things that don't belong there, like telephones, hide-a-bed. Uh, all kinds of stuff could be there. Crimes could take place and so on. I, I tried to, to find an icebox ad. I was living in Paris. This is 1958. I'm living in Paris, and I, and I went to the American Library to look for Life magazine where I had seen iceboxes, and uh, I couldn't find a single ad for an icebox in the you know 12 or 14 copies of Life magazine they had in the American Library there. So I thought, what am I going to do? So I just made it up. Frankly, I I, I didn't worry about it any. In fact, I never did find a photograph of an icebox for years, even though it was so common. I don't know if it really attracted me especially, but it seemed to attract viewers somewhat. And so I made about nine versions eventually by 1964, something like that. You know, they're kind of fascinating as, as, as sites where you are beginning to figure out how, how to use the rectangle. By 1966, and your first paintings that address Vietnam, your, what a Peter Saul painting will be has been fully determined. Your paintings are as recognizable from 50 paces in 1966 as they are today. 
you know, the, the, the recent show at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, Artists Respond, about how American artists engaged with the Vietnam War, really underscored how early your, your engagement with, with the war is, your first Vietnam War-related paintings date to 1966. What motivated you to address the war? Why did you want to? Why did you think that was a perfectly good subject? I did actually protest the war, but that is not a big factor in my painting the war because I lived in a town, Mill Valley, that was completely liberal. I don't think I ever met socially anybody who, who wanted the war to happen. Yeah, Mill Valley, north of San Francisco, completely liberal. There was no real reason. I, I just thought it was good subject which, of course, at that time would have been an explosive answer. You weren't supposed to use war and suffering as subject. You're supposed to have a position on it. I let my paintings, I hoped, like I said this before, I always hoped my paintings would be leftist, you know, would be against the U.S. Army and for Vietnamese and so on. But frequently, if not at least half the time, my paintings were quite fascist, which is okay, too. Personally, I don't like to push my paintings around that much. I, I let them go where they want to go. And the big deal for me is using psychology. I, I, I just think psychology is the fourth thing in painting. You've got, you got color, got form, got space, and you've got psychology. Uh, what the heck? How can a painting not, not want psychology? It, now, my memory is that America was sort of negative on psychology, period, up until the 60s. And then it sort of went nuts on it. And I guess that's when uh, I started to use it in my own way, which is not a responsible way to use it, I'll admit, but too late now. We'll get back to, to Vietnam and violence in a second, but seeing as you, you brought up psychology, in a number of your oral histories and interviews, including in, in the New Museum book, you, you mentioned psychology in, in the context of your work, especially in the context of the Vietnam paintings. Your Smithsonian Archives of American Art Oral History, which you did with Judith Olch Richards, you said, quote, I liked bringing in wacky psychology, which I made up. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I did like it. I, I, I make up everything. I make it up hoping that my picture will be viewed. I don't take it for granted that a viewer's going to go and stand in front of my picture. You told Richards that you belonged to a, quote, shrink book club for a few years and that you read books on psychology. But you also admitted that when an artist called you on on your interest in psychology and asked you for a book or two that would help him, I think it was a him, understand your interest in psychology, you went into your bookcases and realized you, you didn't have any. <laughs> That's true. I guess they all got lost or I threw them away or something. So what about psychology as a, a, a discipline or as an analytical approach captivated you? Well, it, it wasn't as all. It, what captivated me was not at all a discipline or a respectable re approach to it. What captivated me was the idea of people going insane so quickly in their lives in such an interesting way like, you know, they would appear to have normal upbringing, but one little thing was wrong. And next thing you know, they're shooting people. It's that kind of thing really interested me. I, I was really interested in lunatics. In fact, I still am. 
I enjoy very much the New York City subway. I always take the subway if I can. It's just time, and I love it. I, I like people who rant and scream and all that kind of thing. I think it's fascinating. So violence comes into your paintings in 1963 with the execution electric chair paintings. You know, was your address an interest in violence, an outgrowth of your interest in psychology then? No, no. I mean, it comes first. I guess it. These paintings, I, I didn't get into psychology till I got to California in 66, 67, something like that. I mean, I'll admit I may not be totally exact in these years, but the interest in psychology came about because the mother of a little kid that was playing with my little kid uh, took a look in my studio and was quite shocked. And she signed me up for this psychological book club, most of which were volumes on how to feel better and, you know, that kind of thing, how, how to feel happy and not gloomy, blah, blah, which I paid no attention to. But a few of the books were life stories of maniacs and people like that, which really interested me. So that's how I got started. And I never pursued it beyond that. Actually, I just kept on reading for about, uh, you know, 10 years, and then I sort of dropped it. I think the club went out of business. I'm not sure, the, the book club. So I never had a responsible relationship to a shrink, and I haven't been to see a shrink myself. I have really nothing to say. I just feel that psychology, story, content, all that kind of thing has got a place in, in painting pictures that hasn't been acknowledged for quite a while and is now being acknowledged again. So what motivated your interest in the execution chamber and the electric chair in 1963? Well, I started right out before 1963. It was in my very first show, I do believe. Here's what it probably was. Trying to remember things from the States that I could put in my pictures. Crime does not pay comics would loom large. I was really interested in that when I was a little kid. And, of course, my parents' house in San Francisco, 2517 Octavia, looked right down the hill at a prison of Alcatraz out there in the bay. So, I mean, every day when I left for school, I saw Alcatraz. And every afternoon, I mean, we would play, you know, crime games. Uh, probably. It's just sort of a memory of crime being important. Before World War II, if I could go back to my earliest years, say 1939-40, before that I was too young to have any ideas probably, but say 39-40, the headlines were mainly about crime. Before it was about war, World War II, it was about crime. It would be like, for instance, Joey Fry's that would be a headline. And you would read that and you'd say, ah, he paid the final payment on what he was due, blah, blah, what society wanted or something. You know what I mean? It was just a question of crime was in the air before World War II. And then again, immediately after World War II, there was a drop-off probably in newspaper readership. I don't know. But there was certainly nothing to make a headline after Japan was defeated except maybe people misbehaving, you know? So you got to find someone who's misbehaving. They're probably always misbehaving. But 
it became a concern of newspapers again after World War II. But, you know, I don't know. Frankly, I'm a little bit making this up as I go along because uh, actually it was just a sort of stream of consciousness. I needed to paint pictures because I devised this method of getting through life without working or knowing people, really. And I just needed subjects that were really interesting. I didn't rely on my knowing anybody. I, I didn't wish to know a bunch of intellectuals or anything like that. I just wanted to relax in my home, beautiful woman, cigarettes to smoke, you know what I mean? Just sort of that kind of situation. Do anything I want. I think I correctly recognize that modern art is a do-anything-you-want situation. That's these ideas about it, which are imposed on it by, you know, art critics and people like that, are actually a joke. I recognized that right away, but I never got to explain it to anybody because there was immediate objections from the person I was talking to. Like, say, Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. Peter, I know the Professor so-and-so, and so on, you know. It's very hard for uh, people up until now, and probably now too, to acknowledge that art is a thing that you just might as well do anything. Although it's more that way, it hasn't included psychology until very recently, I don't think. So your interest in, or your paintings about violence as taking place in, say, an electric chair, paintings you made across the 60s and then really into the 80s. And still, right now, right now, hey. Do you think that interest in violence migrated into your response to Vietnam and into the Vietnam paintings, or are those two separate pathways for you? I didn't formally say to myself, I'm doing violence, I don't think. I think I probably just went by the subject matter, like drugs, Vietnam, crime, cartoon characters, electric chair, all these things started to pop into my head as soon as I needed subject matter, starting in about 1960 and just going on. The first political painting, which I haven't seen exhibited for a long, long time, like 40 or 50 years is a Hitler's bathroom, which is not as good as it sounds, but it's, it, it was in my first show in 1962 in New York. And then after that, I thought, why stop there? I had uh, Donald Duck versus the Japs and so on. I just had them, I just kept right on going. So in a way, Vietnam was just uh, the latest war scene is the way I probably saw it. One of the, I, you know, I don't know if motif is the right word, probably isn't, one of the forms, at the very least, that is present in a lot of the Vietnam work and that stays in your work throughout your career is the cross. What about the cruciform attracts you to it or has made it useful? Well, what started it, I was in Rome, Italy. I lost my studio in a farm building next door. And so the landlord said, well, who owned all the buildings, the Catholic priest, he said, well, you can uh, paint in the church, just not on Sunday mornings. So I said, okay. 
So I had this bare concrete room behind uh, the crucifixion, you know. That Well, there's a room in the church where they do all that stuff, you know, say mass and everything. And there's a concrete room behind it in this particular church anyway. It was well lit. And I thought, hey, so this is my studio. So I moved in. And after I'd been there a couple of weeks, I thought, gee whiz, I'm painting pictures in a church. Might as well use the crucifixion. So I just started just like that. Later on, I found more use for it. It's such a completely overblown kind of an image that I couldn't resist it. So you have used it in your paintings as both a site where horrible people are crucified, but also as a place where heroes are crucified, such as in the the 1973 painting Crucifixion of Angela Davis. So as a site where violence happens, how did it come to be malleable for you, useful both kind of satirically and pointedly honestly? Well, honestly, I haven't done as much thinking as most artists have about these problems. Quite frankly, I was never a graduate student and did not wish to be a graduate student. So what I, the only thinking I actually do is I think of the subject matter, and then I try to think how I can make a refreshing drawing of it, image of it, on a small scale maybe, and then develop it into a painting. I don't think about these problems. I feel terrible about this, but I just haven't applied my brain to these problems, like how something would become malleable, that's what you say, or useful, or... Yeah, I I was kind of pleased with that word. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I think it's a good word. It's a good word, you know. But I just really haven't had the education to really be able to answer that. There's, I don't know. <laughs> Important thing to realize is that during my lifetime, and this is like early, early, until right now, actually, um, I know very few people. So there's no way for me to know from asking people whether anything I do is valid malleable, nauseating, disgusting, or anything else. You know, I mean, realistically, I I just paint my pictures, and then I scoot them off to some place where they're shown. And unless I get a review that is extremely frank, I'm never going to know anything about the response. So are you kind of saying that crosses are useful, you know, it's there in both um, a painting like Columbus Discovers America from 92 to 95, and it's there as a menacing presence. Both the masts of the ship, of course, are cruciforms, and, and then Columbus is holding cross as he's literally bisecting indigenous people. But it's also, so, so in, in, in some of your paintings, it's a site of menace and violence and refers to colonial histories. You know, I think we see George W. Bush on a cross at one point in one of your paintings. I forget which one. Yeah, both like, oh, yes, yes, Bush and Nixon. I'm not sure if you ever got him up on the cross or not. But at the same time, there, you know, is a painting such as Crucifixion of Angela Davis, wherein... Um, a hero and a martyr is on a cross. Have you ever kind of thought about why is it a cross can be a site on which you put both heroes and and historical actors who... who Yes, I have. The the reason is just crazy psychology called for me to do it 
But I, I, I might regret today that Angela Davis is in this situation because I think she's still alive. And uh, furthermore, there's no question that, that I went way too far in, in, in making fun of psychology or rather making loose use of it, I guess I would say loose use. You know, like if you don't act responsibly with something, I, I didn't act responsible with psychology. I just said, oh boy, let's get into it. Let's have some fun with psychology. It never occurred to me that uh, people were taking anything very seriously. Now, why didn't that occur to me? I don't know why it didn't occur to me. For one thing, either I knew very few people and they didn't talk to me about these things, or what? Or I don't know. I just plain did it, you know? Uh, my main relationship during the years 1960 through 96, 97 was with my art dealer, Alan Frumkin. I would talk to him about things, art questions, and probably not responsibly, I don't know. It's been a long time I've forgotten, frankly. I, you know, we've mentioned a couple presidents and, and notable figures, and, and I noted earlier that as early as the mid-60s, it, was, it had become clear what a Peter Saul painting was, you know, the kind of thing that you can identify at a distance immediately as a Peter Saul. So when did you realize that this visual language, which was pretty fully mature by the mid-1960s, and indeed your palette, which we'll talk about a little later on, lent itself to including and addressing morally venal politicians and especially presidents? Uh, the first one I did was Johnson. That was 66, something like that, 65, 66. So w why did you think politicians would fit within the visual language you were building? Well, it could be a negative. It could be a negative kind of thing, you know. For some reason, there was a lack of negatives in uh, American art. The, the people seemed very, it seemed very cleaned up, frankly, kind of like a college research project, how to put the paint on, that kind of thing. I couldn't believe that it would be taken seriously, but it was. Millions and millions of art viewers, all most responsible and intelligent and well-educated people felt art was a, a thing where you researched into how the paint should be put on next, what kind of shape the canvas, all that kind of thing. I couldn't believe this was happening, but it did. It happened. And I never met anyone who didn't agree with it somewhat, except me. This is really crazy. So, I, I mean, frankly, I didn't speak of it to anyone. I just painted these pictures and oddly enough, for reasons unknown, Alan Frumpkin, the art dealer, accepted them and bought them. And he showed them at regular intervals, like every two years. And he showed it usually in September because he said, it's a good month for you. The art world hasn't really started yet. <laughs> One of the things I noticed in going through your oeuvre chronologically is that as television rises and as television becomes more prominent, your address of politicians, especially presidents, becomes more prominent and more acid. Do you remember thinking about how people like Reagan in the 1960s when he was still in California and not, not yet a, and, and only beginning to become a nationally political figure, and, and then later say, say Nixon, do you remember thinking about how 
they engaged with television and and was television important to your address of them? No, I, I don't think so. I think that what happened is, is once I decided to use them like useful subject matter for Peter Saul, ding, here it is, <laughs> Nixon or someone like that, or Regan, I would simply find photographs and square them off and put it onto the canvas by means of squaring off in the place where it should be. And then starting with that, draw the picture from from the image of, of his head. That's the way I did it. And I, I didn't give it thoughts as to television. Television was good. I mean, the coverage of the Vietnam War was good, of course. I totally approve of it. However, did it influence me? No. I, what, a, a major influence on me was to be against the idea of modern art as it was presented in the United States. I guess that always struck me as a humorous laugh, the way art was presented in the United States, you know, like the main thing is is the paint, how it goes on, that kind of thing. That always struck me as funny. Well, let's let's talk about a, a specific painting with a specific politician. One of your earliest paintings of Ronald Reagan is The Government of California from 1969. That was painted in an abstract expressionist manner, like the San Francisco painting. Here's what I did. I said, well, let's see. What are we going to have in this one? Let's have the Golden Gate Bridge. So using markers, I guess, yeah, using uh, kids' markers, I would draw in the uh, bridge and would paint it to a great extent. And then I'd say, well, let's see, what's special about this bridge? Well, instead of having steel cables holding it up, we'll have toilet paper holding it up. (laughs) And then I said, well, what next? Oh, Ronald Reagan, right in front of it. So in he goes, bang. And then I just kept on going. I said, well, we've got all this evil in there. We've got a lousy bridge, lousy governor. What next? Let's have something spiritually enlightening. So I put in Martin Luther and I just kept on going. As things occurred to me that could be of some kind of an interest to to a viewer, for any reason, I just put it in the picture. That's it. I enjoyed the illusion, putting in the illusion of stuff, you know, one after another. You you mention, hopefully jokingly, that you're lightly educated, but it's worth noting you did go to Stanford and Washington University in St. Louis, two of America's greatest universities. <laughs> and your paintings throughout indicate a, a deep and clear-sighted understanding of American history. In painting after painting after painting, you, you uh, revise history, stripping back layers and pointing at fundamental truths. Um, we talked about the painting of, of Christopher Columbus and how it... Uh, wields violence and and the cruciform, for example. I wanted to bring up your address in, of, of history in the context of the great painting, View of San Francisco Number no. 2 from 1984, painted at the height of the Reagan years. What brought you to San Francisco, an aerial view of San Francisco as a subject? Well, I thought it would coincide with the abstract expressionist way of putting a picture together. That is, I could throw things in and it would be like the earthquake of 1906. I thought, hey, if it were to happen today, if there were to be an earthquake, I could just uh, make use of it. I could, I could paint a picture of it. 
with jokes, visually speaking. Another kind of both art historical standard you've you've addressed and site you've addressed is Washington Crossing the Delaware, uh, a painting you made in 1975. It's another painting where you're you're having fun with in which you're having fun with a famous painting, but also also with 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 history. As you approached a, a very famous subject and and at least as famous painting, how did you want to tweak or add to our understanding of that event and, and that painting? I wasn't expecting people to be really interested in history itself. I was expecting people to be interested in the art style. I mean, there was so much insistence on the art style of the United States, its various, you know, minimalism, post-minimal, and so on, that I, I just wanted to counteract that. I didn't actually think in terms of actual history. I never expected to be viewed by people who would be concerned with actual history. It seemed to me that I was the only person in the art world that I knew who was the least bit doubtful of the history of modern American painting. Most people believed in these movements as they went by to some extent. And and I just thought it was a joke. And the only person who agreed with me was my art dealer. I mean, not my wife, not my children, not the neighbors. I mean, you know, it's just the art dealer. What the heck? Isn't that strange? I never thought of the deeper concern of the subject. Like, how do I feel about Washington crossing the Delaware? I don't know. I went to school in Canada, so I didn't study American history. So I don't really know that much about it. There's a certain accidental coincidence, maybe, between my painting and someone's idea of the truth right now in 2020. You know, you mentioned isms and your and your disinterest in isms, and there are a, a couple of things about the way you painted uh, and and paint that I want to raise. It, one of them, the most obvious one, is your extraordinary palette. Your your color is your and your color and colors are extremely distinctive. Uh, and I want to quote your your archives of American art oral history with Judith Olch Richards again. Here's here's what you said back then. Now I just don't know what to say about color. But at that time, and, and, and y'all were talking about the 50s and early 60s, it seemed like the oil paints had a certain dead look to them that was hard to overcome. This was 55, 56. The normal range of oil paints that I was using, Windsor, Newton, Rembrandt, had a hard time looking like anything except grayish dough. But when the acrylics came in, and Dayglow acrylics too, I would use, even though it's not permanent, I would use that, and that helped. So did these colors that would then stay in your work, really, for the next 50 or 60 years, simply come out of what became commercially available? Or as the years went on, were you, in, were, were you looking to maintain that kind of high, bright, almost garish tone? Well, I mean, a bit of both. I, I don't know what the word garish means. I keep forgetting to look it up in the dictionary, but it probably means too bright. I don't know, but, but I'm trying to match the colors that are in the society, in the products, in, in the real estate, here and there, in the printed matter, and so on. To, to a great extent, I'm simply matching the colors that are around, and I'm also taking advantage of the development of art supplies. When I first discovered acrylic in Paris, 1962 was my very first experience of it. It didn't work very well. By 1966, it worked pretty good, but it was considered for children. 
And so I started using it. It was very inexpensive. And the oil paint was expensive. And now it's the reverse. I mean, it's a fine art supply. So I guess I followed through with acrylic as it developed into a fine art supply. I've been using it more uh, completely. Not more and more, I shouldn't say that. Completely since about 1970. And I really enjoyed it. I I think it's good. Its drawbacks can be conquered by use of mediums. I think my pictures look pretty good coloristically. I think they do. Do you think about how you want the surface of your paintings to look? No, not, well, yes and no. I had to forego thickness because the problem with acrylic is it's a lot of it's water. One coat of acrylic is sort of like spilling a cup of coffee on your canvas. It doesn't amount to a row of beans. Everything I do on the canvas, I do two or three times. Uh, That's to get enough paint onto the surface so that it's really there. Oil paint is different, of course. You just do it once. If you do it right, there it is. Finito. So, you know, there's always a drawback. (laughs) The drawback in acrylic is uh, there's not as much stuff on the canvas. So you've got to do it several times in order to get properly there. A key way that you've built paintings since since the iceboxes, really, is that your compositions take up and use and require just about every damn inch of the entire rectangle. Is that as simple as you're noticing that that worked for abstract expressionist painters, or are there other reasons that you that you use every bit of space you possibly can? Well, I'm painting a picture of the image, but I want the surface to be mostly the image and minimize the background. It's simply the image is the important part of the surface, I think. So that's why it fills up as much as possible the whole surface. While we're, while we're on a kind of art historical references, there are a number of places in uh, the catalog for the new museum show, such as in an essay by Dan Nadel. I hope I'm saying his name right. And in response to a question you were asked in a Q&A by Massimiliano Gioni, that note your early interest in Francis Bacon especially as prompted by a 1953 spread of Bacon's paintings in Time magazine, which was amazing to read about. I hadn't known about that. So what about Bacon interested you back then? Well, it was gloomy and terror-stricken, agonized. Everything in the U.S. visual arts was sort of cheerful, in my opinion, lightweight, kind of like Matisse, you know, mainly involved with feeling good. I didn't see any post-war gloom. Where, which I, I, I saw in Bacon, they kind of liked it, it appealed to me, maybe because I was an adolescent, you know, I mean, adolescents like that kind of thing. It didn't occur to me that I wasn't a gloomy person, really. I enjoyed that kind of painting, but it, it eventually occurred to me that I was probably being laughed at, so I got with it, I became humorous. Is it fair or is it possible to draw a direct line between the anguished and exaggerated features in many of Bacon's subjects, such as his cardinals or his popes, and the exaggerated facial expressions and features in your paintings? I guess so. I mean, uh, I guess so. I guess you could say that I'm encouraged by Bacon, absolutely. I like his work, yeah. However... I never really, here's the thing, most of the of the work that has influenced me, individual pictures, I saw in reproduction. 
I've, I've never gone to see the actual picture. I didn't see those Bacons that had a profound influence on me in 1953. I didn't actually see them face to face until sometime in the last 10 or 12 years at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. One other art historical constant in your work about which I want to ask is your interest in surrealism or your evident interest in surrealism. What got you interested in surrealism and why did it sustain your interest? Why has it sustained your interest? Well, I wasn't really interested in surrealism as a movement, possibly as much as I should have been, but I was definitely very interested in Salvador Dali and his imagery. I was attracted to it, well, for the first of all, for the obvious reason that you're not supposed to be attracted to it. He was the most disliked artist except for Norman Rockwell, and maybe even more disliked than Norman Rockwell during the time that I was in art school and around then, you know, the years later. I just was fascinated by someone who could break rules like that. I, I hope to break those kind of rules myself. What do you think you took most from Dali and surrealism? Just the idea of misbehavior artistically. The weak point of Dali's pictures is they never show any reaction within the picture. Like there could be a flaming giraffe, and next to the flaming giraffe is a woman in the bathing suit. But the woman in the bathing suit never shows any reaction to the flaming giraffe, you know. She's not frightened of it. She's not warmed by it or anything. So in a way, there's, there's a difficulty in just throwing things into the picture. Did the Surrealists and Dali in particular give you, air quotes, permission to elongate figures and body parts? And Well, I guess, oh, that was Plastic Man. Plastic Man gave me that permission. Uh, he was a very important comic character. Ah, because that's, that's been pretty constant in the work forever, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, Plastic Man, I, I can't list all the things that occurred to me sitting at the Dome Cafe in 1958, but Plastic Man was another one. Smokey Stover, Plastic Man, Crime Does Not Pay, Donald Duck, and so on. Let's, let's finish up by talking about a recent painting, a very recent painting, 2018's Abstract Expressionist Portrait of Donald Trump. This is, you know, I, I keep referencing history, but this is a painting full of the history of art and other things. First of all, uh, why did you want to kind of throw back to Abex in addressing Trump? Ah, it, was, it wasn't my first choice. My first choice in dealing with Trump was to turn him into a crocodile. And that's another picture. Yes, that's Donald Trump in Florida from the year before, 2017. I, frankly, I was slow with Trump. I never thought he'd be elected. I mean, I never thought he'd be the president. It just astonished me. By the time I got geared up to paint Donald Trump, 10,000 artists had already painted it, I'm sure. So what I could do was uh, I thought, oh, there's nothing left for me. This guy's been insulted uh, sexually, financially, every single way you could do it. What's there for me? I'll make him into a crocodile. And then I thought, hey, we can just put in the hair and move back to one of the art movements, one of the useful art movements. So I just, look, had, a, had his hair involved with abstract expressionism. It surprises me that painting has become more popular than the others, but you never know what's going to happen next. One of the things I see in the Abex portrait of Trump 
is a little bit what we were talking about earlier in terms of how um, Reagan and Nixon come into your work as television rises and as television creates celebrities, especially given Reagan's in particular tele telegenicness, if that's a word. So Abeck's portrait of Donald Trump seems to suggest or could be read as suggesting that Trump, as represented by the hair, uh, is a product of media. Um, he flows right out of the paintbrushes and the, um, and the Abex. Well, that's gestures. an idea. Hey, that's pretty good. <laughs> hey, you should start painting. <laughs> <laughs> well, were you interested in that idea? Was that, were you interested in the idea of, of Trump as having had this 30 or 40 year long relationship with the New York media, the that. Well, I wasn't aware he was that famous. I mean, I, I know he had a TV program, which I actually watched for like three or four seconds before changing the station. I had no idea it was popular and that people were watching it. Peter Saul, thank you very much. You're welcome. Now on view at the Getty Center... Michelangelo, Mind of the Master, an exhibition of extraordinary drawings by one of the most creative and influential artists in the history of Western art. Experience the full range of his work as a painter, sculptor, and architect through studies and sketches for such celebrated projects as the Sistine Chapel ceiling and The Last Judgment. The Wall Street Journal calls the show nothing less than the perfect exhibition. Learn more about this major event at getty.edu. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Cosmic Rhythm Vibrations, highlighting works from the collection that engage visual and musical rhythm. Rhythm may be expressed through repeated patterns of color, form, or movement, or, in other cases, implied sound and dance. Whether they embody a beat or a swing, these works carry a pulse that helps guide the viewer through time and space. As wide-ranging objects that reference the power of rhythm and music to transcend earthly concerns, Collectively, they become cosmic in their vast reach and otherworldly magnetism. The majority of the works come from the museum's contemporary collection, but also include other artistic genres, time periods, and modes of production, such as the traditional African and ancient American collections. The exhibition incorporates new acquisitions by Elizabeth Matheson, Dave Muller, Paolo Nazareth, and Gordon Parks, a pyramid of symbols by Satch Hoyt, a music and photography installation by Zyveria Simmons, Vibrating Landscapes by Charles Birchfield, Singing Birds by James Audubon, A G's Bend Quilt by Nettie Young, and much more. On view through March 1st at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash cosmic. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. On view from March 13th through August 2nd at the Pulitzer, is Terry Adkins, Resounding, a career-spanning exhibition that surveys the trajectory of this influential artist's expansive and improvisational practice. The exhibition features a range of Adkins's work, including rarely shown early sculptures and works on paper, as well as his acclaimed recitals, installations of related artworks with which Adkins explored the legacy of unsung but significant historic figures and moments. The exhibition also includes a robust selection of items that Adkins collected, books, records, musical instruments, and other objects from a diversity of artistic traditions that highlight the breadth of Adkins's literary, musical, and visual influences. To plan your visit or to purchase an exhibition catalog, visit pulitzerarts.org.
Welcome back. Next up, sculptor Barry X. Ball, who joins me to discuss his work on the occasion of a career-spanning survey at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas. That exhibition, titled Barry X. Ball Remaking Sculpture, is on view through April 19th. Ball's sculptures are typically created out of rare stones with the assistance of 3D scanning and printing technology and CNC milling machines. His work often addresses and updates major work from the history of the medium, such as Michelangelo's Rondinini Pietà or Medardo Rosso's. This is Ball's first survey exhibition in the United States. Previous exhibitions of his work have been at Ca Pissarro in Venice, the Castello Sforzesca in Milan, and the Villa Panza in Varese. The fine exhibition catalog was published by the Nasher. Barry X. Ball, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with you. The catalog to the exhibition at the Nasher opens not with the usual title page or with a table of contents, but with a pointed series of 10 or 11 pictures of a sculpture now in the Louvre called Sleeping Hermaphrodite, and then of your work. It's, it's a pointed and clever series of pictures that refers not just to the work in the Louvre, but, but to your work. So let's start with Sleeping Hermaphrodite. What about it attracted your interest? It's probably the most famous composite artwork in the history of art. Uh, It's been worked on by various artists for over two millennia. Originally, the hermaphrodite figure was a bronze Greek, second century BC, then copied by the Romans, second century AD, lost discovered near the baths of Diocletian at the time of Scipione Borghese, and he hired the young house genius, 19-year-old John Lorenzo Bernini, to bed it, which changed the whole intent, meaning of the work. And then other artists, like one we know is David Larique, did figure restorations. It's It's a mosaic, multiple pieces of stone, worked on for two millennia. And I had this idea to do a 21st century consolidation of that work. And uh, it was really the first of my, quote, masterpiece series, the works that are directly inspired by specific historical works. And uh, it was, you know, a magical start to that series of works, being able to work in the Musée du Louvre, when it was closed, in the great Salle de Cariati, the Greek and Roman hall there, with this work that I'd learned about when I was a student at Pomona College. It was just a fantastic experience from the scanning all the way through its multi-year creation process. Literally, I think if you look at the dates there, we're over 10 years in the creation of the translucent pink Iranian onyx version that we have at the Nasher Sculpture Center. Yeah, the first the first two pictures show the three-dimensional scanning process you mentioned. And then the next couple pictures are of you in what looks like a stone market selecting that onyx. Yeah, in Carrara, Italy, the, which is the stone shopping center of the world for everything, not just white, famous Bianco, Carrara Marmo. It's, uh, you want the best Brazilian stone, Bolivian, Vietnamese, Egyptian, American, Portuguese, you go to Carrara, Italy. And that's me with a potential block of incredible 
material, you don't see blocks like that. You can go back to Carrara for 10 years and not find a piece as perfect as that one that I'm measuring there, which ultimately became the sculpture stone. So why pink onyx for this sculpture? Well, I, I wanted to emphasize that fleshiness. It's also translucent in the extreme. Uh, I'm often trying to dematerialize that very stony, obdurate material that I'm working with. You know, Bernini, like I said, made this piece sexier. The original hermaphrodites were on slabs. It's a pretty, uh, you know, sexy subject to begin with, this transsexual figure, which is, seems so au courant, uh, you know, the, the myth of uh, hermaphroditus. It's actually a love story where they were united in one body. But by putting it on a bed, it, it takes it another level, to a state of post-coital arousal. There's this feeling of somebody waking up or are they going to sleep. It just adds a kind of poignancy to the whole thing being on a bed. And then I, uh, I had the advantage of all the digital palette of my armamentarian to apply to it to, I think, take it to another level of sensuality. One of the things that you, you do here in this work and that you do with lots of work is address works from the past via a kind of conscious doubling. What about a direct address interests you most? Well, first of all, I scanned Michelangelo's Pietà Rondanini and my version, my Pietas in the show. To go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the greats is kind of, in general, my aim. To me, uh, my definition of art is the greatest thing humans can do. And, and to go up against the best artists that have ever lived. I mean, uh, it is really a challenge. When I moved to New York 40 years ago, I thought I was uh, going to the Olympics. I was going up against <laughs> the great contemporary artists of my time who had all been drawn to New York and, uh, you know, kind of extended to historical artists. Uh, it, it just uh, seems like I would like to hold on to all the power of those, those historical works and take them to a new place and make them mine. And so often in the display of my sculptures, I've had the opportunity to show them side by side, mano a mano with the historical original. One advantage of that is that people often tell me, I get it, You're, it's not a copy. It's, you, there is something new that you've done here uh, when you can see it next to a historical work. Uh, you know, there's that beautiful mirroring across time my sculptures are almost always, by the way, mirror images uh, in their orientation uh, to the historical originals. The sleeping hermaphrodite lays the opposite way in the one in the, in the Louvre. Right. Of course, there's a, a long art historical tradition of that, especially in painting, where uh, a painter or, or a printmaker would reverse the pose or presentation borrowed from a previous master, um, both as a way of disguising a little bit, but also as a way of kind of opening up the reference and making it easier or, I don't know, more generative for, for, for the subsequent artist to find something new. You mentioned Michelangelo's uh, Pietà Rondonini, which is a late-in-life sculpture that Michelangelo failed to complete himself, but unlike other works he failed to complete, 
survived his his studio, uh, I guess mostly because it left it before before his death. What about addressing that particular Michelangelo interested you? And how did you, and I guess why did you change the face or add to the face of one of the two figures? Well, uh, yeah, I could talk about this work for an hour. Uh, it's, it's an extraordinary piece. Hard to believe that uh, it was ignored and forgotten. It was in the Rondonini family courtyard in Rome. There are pictures of the children, the Rondonini kids, playing with their toy cars on the sculpture. It was considered such a nothing up into the 20th century. It was dirty. It was outside in a, the courtyard. Uh, they stuck it on a Roman base like a lot of Romans. They had ancient artifacts sitting around inappropriately, so it doesn't even fit on the base that it was on. I'll try to keep this short, but but there's so many connections to everything else going on in this show. One of the connections that's interesting is that my great friend and supporter, Laura Mattioli, who through her foundation in Switzerland is actually the owner of my, my Pieta, she has and her family has maybe the greatest collection of Italian modernism. And Laura is the founder of the Center for Italian Modern Art in New York, which has had a series of extraordinary exhibitions that kind of fed into my work, too. But it turns out that Laura's father, who compiled the collection, uh, was very involved in a campaign by the city of Milano post-World War II to purchase the Pietà Rondonini, bring it to Milano as kind of a symbol of the resurgence of the town. Uh, from the war and there. Milano was 75% destroyed, really. Uh, we, we don't even think about that. We think of Nuremberg and other towns. It was really in a bad place. And they, you know, I think it was a great idea. They brought this sculpture up there. They were able to buy it at that time for not so much money again, because it wasn't considered so amazing. It's a sculpture now that is beloved of artists because it's an old man going down to his death wonder if he was aware how close he was to death. Uh, he was apparently carving on the sculpture. Michelangelo Bonarotti was uh, six days before he died at age 88. An extraordinarily long life for somebody at that time in the 16th century. And he uh, was almost inventing a new form of sculpture on the fly, a la prima, which was not the way he typically worked. There's this vision of Michelangelo uh, hacking away just on the fly at blocks of stone. He, he was very innovative in his methods of enlarging from models to get them out of various blocks of stone. But in this one, you see evidence of the prior incarnation of the sculpture and with the massive, powerful forms that we know from the Capella Sistina, the Sistine Chapel in Rome, uh, the typical Michelangelesque muscularity is been erased and and Michelangelo is striving for a kind of gothic attenuated mannerist spirituality with weightless forms and you see the evidence of the, the there's this vestigial arm from the prior composition you, you see 
all kinds of different stone treatments, almost a catalog of stone working techniques from pure raw stone to rough chisel work to finer to polish going on. It's, it's frozen creativity at the end of this old man's life, him searching for something new. He created mannerisms almost single-handedly in sculpture with this work. Michelangelo was devoted to the Virgin and was very spiritual at the end of his life. He apparently uh, donated uh, most of his work on the architectural work on St. Peter's, and he was effectively carving his own funeral monument. And I morphed a portrait of Michelangelo into this, my sculpture instead of the roughed out face of Christ uh, is in Michelangelo's version. Uh, I actually scanned in Castello Sforzesco where the Pietà Romanini is, a portrait of Michelangelo by uh, his uh, student and follower, uh, Daniele da Volterra, uh, the infamous Daniele da Volterra, the guy who later painted the fig leaves on uh, figures in the Sistine Chapel. But he did this portrait, the best one we have. There are copies of it in bronze in the Louvre, etc. And I took that 3D scan and kind of changed it stylistically to fit the Pietà the, my Pieta and and morphed it in there because you know like I said it, this is uh, Michelangelo making his own funerary monument and I, I affected a couple other changes too of you know one important one is the late great art historian out of the University of Pennsylvania Leo Steinberg advanced the theory that unlike all the other Pietas this is not a mother holding the body of her dead son this is a son supporting his mother in her grief, carrying her on his back. And to emphasize that, I took away the rock that the Virgin was standing on and drooped her foot. And if you look at the side views of my sculpture, which we purposely emphasized by the positioning at the National Sculpture Center so that you would confront the side as you came into the room, uh, you'll see this, this beautiful arc almost Brancusi-esque, which is which some Brancusi kind of rears his head in a few of my works in the show, especially his use of pedestals in conjunction with his sculptures. So I was able to emphasize that, that long curve. Uh, it's an unfamiliar view. We see the reproductions of the Pietà Rondanini from the front only. And uh, again, I'm thinking of my sculptures as sculptures in the round, you know, so there, there's some reasons that I affected the changes I did. What is the finish on the lower section of the sculpture? And what is this finish on the upper section of the sculpture? And why did you choose for them to be different? There's a variety of surface finishes, not just for decorative reasons, but actually conceptually linked to the work. So I should talk about the pedestal, which is integrated with the sculpture. Uh, it, it was based on that ill-fitting Roman grave stella. They actually uh, took my scan data in Milano, used it to create a whole new display for the Pietà Rondanini. I had no way of knowing that when I was scanning in there that they would act were actually thinking of creating this museo pietà rondanini where 
they show just it in a much better position than it was before. And they debated again about what to do with the pedestal. They had tried to get rid of that damn pedestal when they moved the sculpture to Milano. And all the designs they came up with at that time, right after World War II, were rejected. So it had been shown on this grave, Stella, for 60, 70 years. And I like the link of it with the work. It's not on it now. They have this whole anti-seismic base. They actually used my scan data to create a copy, a rough copy, and did all this seismic testing. I, I love all this because I'm super grateful to these institutions for allowing me to scan and the fact that they were able to use my data, which is something I always do. I give them copies of the scan data for study, restoration, and in this case, creating a whole new installation for the Michelangelo. And I took that grave stella though and put it back on it, unlike what you see now in Milano, and uh, and changed the proportions of the pedestal. I turned it into a trapezoidal solid, so it would link better with this tall obelisk-like composition of the pedestal plus my sculpture. And, and to me, it was appropriate. It's a uh, on the grave still are portraits of a man and woman. It was a funerary monument for a couple. And to me, I like this link of the ancient world and the Renaissance, modern world above. You have a man and a woman, a mother and a, her child. And then I wanted to go with my translucent stone to affect a surface on the entire sculpture that gave it a kind of soft focus, what Leonardo da Vinci would call sfumato, a smokiness. I, I did a lot of testing with the step over, we call it in robot world, but the, the, the spacing between the little flutes caused by the robot milling process to be able to see the forms of the sculpture, but make them somewhat indistinct. And so it has a kind of ridged, horizontal, ribbed surface, which also reminds me of patterning on Egyptian sculpture. It's just actually a spiral from the ground to the 10-foot top of the sculpture above, a continuous milled spiral. And then I have schematicized polish areas, which more or less conform to Michelangelo's, although I don't want to have anything that smacks of uh, hand blending. I mean, um, it fits with my approach that I would make a map of his polish and institute it mechanically, you know, so it's just kind of in keeping with my working methods. So I think that I love the passages on my sculpture where you see Michelangelo's chisel marks with my marks superimposed on top of them. You see my horizontal flutes with vertical big plowed ridges by his pointed chisel. So it's like we're working together to make this work. In all of my masterpieces, I feel like I, I want to respect this artist's work and take it to a new place. Again, holding on to everything that they put into it and adding layers to it, adding you know enough of my touches usually thousands of subtle changes 
that cumulatively give the piece a buzz, a, a, a new feeling. Like I said, when you put mine next to the Michelangelo, there's no mistaking that it's a work of contemporary art, I hope. Addressing the way sculpture was made and the effects sculptors could get in the past with the means uh, and tools, tools of the present, which is always fun. There are five or six sculptures in the show in which you address the great early modern sculptor Medardo Rosso. Sculptures made out of uh, white Vietnamese marble, Mexican onyx, and more. What about Rosso interested you, and why did you choose the materials you chose for your address of him? I became familiar with his work because, again, of my friendship with Laura Mattioli, who's the founder, again, of the Center for Italian Modern Art. Her second show there was a beautiful, comprehensive exhibition of Madonna Rosso's work, drawings, sculptures, photographs. She's an incredibly innovative, overlooked artist. Again, a favorite of contemporary artists. They had an exhibition at Tadeus Ropak in Paris, uh, Peter Freeman in New York. I saw it. Tony Craig talking about his work. Uh, it's this uh, discovery of an artist who was ahead of Brancusi, ahead of Rodin, cast his own bronzes, very rare for that to happen, uh, started playing with the materials of casting, took his own photographs, started playing with the chemical of photography. His drawings are exquisite, uh, made small-scale works. Part of the reason he's not considered a great. There's a lesson for contemporary artists who want to be remembered. Think about doing a monumental sculpture every once in a while. Otherwise, you get dismissed wrongly so as the, the maker of those small things. But that's part of the reason why we know more about Rodin than we do about uh, Rosso, even though Rosso knew Rodin and was ahead of him. Anyway, I helped Laura install the show. I designed the pedestals, worked on the lighting, which is another one of my fixations. And through that whole process, you know, fell in love with this work. And then when the show started being talked about at the Nasher, which was a long time ago, I, you're picking up on things here, the, the process of making my work and generating the exhibitions that result from it are all long-term. I think we started talking about the show at the Nasher in 2012, so eight, eight years, because Jed Morse wanted to have new work. And it just a, a typical life cycle for my sculptures. If I went direct, is five years from the time that I 3D scan a historical work through all the digital modeling, through the acquisition and cutting of the stone, through the robot milling, I mean, I mentioned this to this point, but the Sleeping Hermaphrodite, for example, has 10,000 hours of handwork. That's the equivalent of five person years. They just take a long time to make. And when I went to the Nasher for the first time, I saw that they also have a nice collection of Madonna Rosso's work. And so Jed, you know, and I talked about it and I said, well, I'm you know, already working on this project, uh, my Madara Rosso project. And uh, it would be great for me to have my work here to go up against the ones in the Nasher's collections. And you know, it ultimately happened. Jed beautifully selects work from the Nasher's collection. I think it's his general practice with every exhibition there. 
to mirror, contrast with, emphasize the artist of the moment. And one of the things he did here was to put out almost all of their Medardo Rosos. And one thing he did that was beautiful was uh, to borrow uh, one version of the Jewish boy sculpture from Howard Rachofsky and put it in a case next to the Nasher's version of that sculpture. Medardo himself played a lot with, quote, copies of his own work, doubling, experimenting with different versions. And different materials, yeah. Yeah, different materials, even the same material with a different approach. There's doubling throughout my show in two-headed, two figures, the obvious doubling of the historical originals, the et cetera, then the hermaphrodite doubling of sex, uh, et cetera. And so uh, I ultimately scanned 39 Rosso's in all the major collections of Italy because Laura Mattioli introduced me to Danila Marsure, who is actually the heir to Medardo Rosso and runs the Archivio, the archive of Medardo Rosso. And I scanned in the Museo Medardo Rosso in Barzio, at Capesero in Venice, at uh, the Gallery uh, GAM, Gallery Arte Moderna in Milano, etc. Pretty much a catalog resume of Medardo's work. And it's my intention to make versions of all of those, sometimes multiple versions, by flipping the classic sculptural divide, additive to reductive. I mean, you've always got... Rodin is usually used as the prime example of an additive artist building up uh, to create his forms, and Michelangelo, a reductive artist, cutting away. And I'm cutting away from stone blocks to achieve my work, and Rosso was a builder up for know, As far as I know, he didn't carve anything from stone. That flip goes on, uh, again, I'm using translucent stones, Many of Rosso's forms are on the verge of unrecognizability, Would, and I love the ones that get closest to that. His famous, to me at least, baby at the breast is a pure abstract form in bronze. His is three millimeters, one-eighth inch thick bronze, and mine in the show at the Nasher is in ultra-translucent uh, golden honeycomb calcite and they and we put it in front of the windows so it's backlit and you can see it kind of glowing to me I, I wanted to push them one step farther towards abstraction you know i think i succeeded here the one other uh, great rosso show that comes to mind is sharon hecker's 2016 show at the pulitzer arts foundation in st louis Hecker's book on Rosso is a recent book on Rosso is really the go-to English language text on on the artist. Barry X Ball, thanks very much. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.